0: This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world? I'm not particularly whooped on either leader at the moment. I'm so not whooped. I'm not really whooped on Scott Morrison and I'm not really whooped on Anthony Albanese. They lack that whoop factor. Greg Norman has become a pariah. The strong informed source is that it's 50 million a year. Every time he makes another comment, another atrocity comes to light by the people in power in Saudi Arabia. And I think Greg Norman has completely destroyed his reputation forever. In the shower, I'm thinking, hmm, Bunny in a cup of tea
1: and Kevin McLeod perfect night, right? Come out, the bunny's gone. He's eaten the
0: whole bunny and half the platform of chocolate. I was so <laughs> angry I couldn't talk for the rest of the night. There is an umpiring crisis. Everybody has to stop carrying on about poor umpiring. You know, players make mistakes all the time. We don't carry on about their mistakes every minute of the day yes, good in point. the way we do about the umpires. Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome, everybody, to episode 214 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. Here with me in the studio, which is a great thrill to see her again out of her COVID bed, is Corrie Perkins.
1: Oh, hello, Jane and Caro and all potties. Anybody who's
0: had COVID, I agree with you. It's not, a, it's not a walk in the park, is it, Caro? It's not, Corrie. It's not. And you were going to be hosting a live event in Geelong with John Fain, which went ahead, but you were on Zoom uh, you were going to see your mighty Hawks, as it turned out, beat the mighty Cats, which they did at the MCG. I, I was so dying to razz you about finally getting back to the MCG after however many years. Yeah, probably didn't happen.
1: Probably more than two. Yes, uh, look, huge. Disappointment. Well, definitely more
0: than two, because there there's <laughs> barely been football there for those years.
1: Yes, uh, look, Caro, what can I say? I, I felt very agitated about it being at Easter time, and every plan was, of course, cancelled. But I'm not the only one who's been in this boat and I think of Friends... You and I know who at Christmas time had to miss out on Christmas. You, of course, missed your gorgeous trip to the Cologne Christmas Fair last and year. Maastricht. <laughs> yes, I still haven't recovered from
0: the Maastricht trip. <laughs> I have to get to um, Maastricht someday. And,
1: and, you know, people have missed weddings and significant birthdays. And look, thankfully, over this week, I haven't had any of those. But the John Fane event at Geelong was a little tricky. And I just want to thank. Well, first of all, John, who said the show must go on, which was great. And then Liv Fleetwood, our friend at the Co in Geelong, who so cleverly got me up on the wall. They didn't even need a white sheet, Caro. They just She popped it up and I came out as clear as anything, apparently. At one stage, Coco. The other one I want to thank, daughter Coco, who was just brilliant at being mini-me, but um, Coco texted me at one stage saying, Mum, you're on the wall, you're bigger than life, and you're fidgeting. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking at my phone and, you know, just looking for my notes. And clearly, when you're li- bigger than life size, everything like, so I just sat so still, scratching nose, coughing fits, you know, just, <laughs> well, I'm. I'm anyway, it, the night went on, and there were 45 people. And for those
0: potties who turned up, good on you, gang. I'm, Thank thrilled, you. I'm thrilled you're over it. I'm thrilled you didn't get it in the first week of May because on Thursday, May the 5th, we are going to be at May our... May the five, <laughs> May the 5th. <laughs> May the 5th, not May the 4th. May the 5th, we are going to be at our Mother's Day celebration at Bell's Hotel at 5.30 for a special live podcast. It's you and me, our special guests Uh, Heather Hewitt and Barry Cassidy. Really looking forward to getting them up on stage, along with Julia Wilson and Anna from the Op Shop. Anna Barry, fabulous night. It's going to be starting at 5.30. Please check our show notes to work out how you buy a ticket. There's $60 a ticket. There's wine. There's snacks. You're going to have a ball, so please come along. And
1: can I just say, and I know I've said this before, but I really mean it, if you're thinking of coming Alone, and you think, Oh no, that's a bit embarrassing. For goodness sake, don't think that. This is the warmest, fuzziest crowd. This is such a great gang of men and women of all ages. And, Carol, remember when we were at Bell's uh, a couple of years ago before the whole lockdown thing happened? And we looked around the room and we just said, People are talking to people they've never met, and they're all yep. laughing. They're buying each other
0: wines. <laughs> working really. out working out connections. And it even is. if they didn't have a connection, they made one. Absolutely right. Corrie. I just want to
1: say something about it being before Mother's Day. I've worked out what I'm going to wear and it's actually pink or pink tones. And I thought, look, why don't we all try and wear pink? Wouldn't that be fun? That's a good. Actually, I I might
0: have a little pink number. I could. Um, I think you've that. got about seven pink numbers. I do, do not. <laughs> you have more clothes. I've actually you have more got more clothes than the Duchess of Windsor. I've actually got. Um, a very nice little pink number that Channel Nine purchased for me for Footy Classified. I might see if I can snaffle that for the night. Well,
1: we include gents in this too, and that goes to my son Will Carter. You look very nice
0: in pink, Will. Get a nice pink linen shirt. That would be lovely. There's so, pink everywhere. I notice Gary Lyon on the couch these days is always. Yes, he's wearing pink, he's wearing that, that jacket a lot. I he think he fancies himself in that dark. Could pink you tell jacket. him to wear
1: something else, Miss Jane? We want you in pink as well, please. We also
0: have to get sh- out that
1: bunny suit, Jane. We
0: also have to thank Red Energy, our show sponsor who have the most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. And, of course, the wonderful Prince Wine Store. We'll be talking to Miles about red wine. That mixed dozen I purchased a few weeks before Easter, Corrie. Um, There's not a lot left, I'm embarrassed to say, but a couple of big recommendations out of that one. Just remember princewinestore.com.au. Corrie? My apology is to you. I was a terrible COVID friend. I have never been as busy as I was over Easter, largely with work, but also um, hosting my wonderful Sydney in-laws, Jane and Johan. So um, they were sorry not to meet you. Oh, I, that was another devastating blow. I know. Look, Yet another. We'll do it all
1: again, COVID. Oh, you don't have to apologise to me, but, I do, but thank you to, to those people who did drop off things necessary like coffee and milk and... And, Carol, I've really learned, actually. I thought I was a pretty good COVID friend to some of my buddies over the past two years, but I realise pales into insignificance compared with some people. So to all those friends of mine who have had COVID and said, God, she never comes around with the breadstick. Uh, I'm sorry, retrospectively. We've had a lovely little um, note on Instagram from Melinda HC. I love listening to your podcast on my walk. So the longer the podcast, the longer my walk. Win-win. Now, Caro, I've heard this before because you remember a couple of years ago we were a bit concerned our podcast was going to the hour, a bit long. Well, we were told by Miss Jane. (laughs) We could have talked (laughs) forever. (laughs) We didn't care. Yes, Jane got a bit. Jane, bring it under 45. Well, a lot of people have said it's the perfect drive if they have to drive home from work to the outer suburbs or if they're going away to the beach for the weekend. A
0: walk is usually an hour. So people do like our hour. Thank you, Melinda. And thank you, Cathy Briggs, who um, says Happy Easter and um, is currently reading The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo, one of my favourite books of last year. Thank you, Kathy. Glad you're enjoying it. And, Corrie, Shauna O'Sullivan loves the podcast. Looking forward to the Mother's Day event. She's timed to her next visit to Melbourne because of it. She's bringing two friends. Fabulous. There should be more of it, Shauna. She loves your dress. What brand? What dress oh, would she be talking um, about?
1: There, were, there was a little photo that went up on the Don't Shoot the Messenger uh, Instagram account, which is called at don't shoot pod. And it was a photo of you and I at our friend Annie's Little 70th Lunch. Oh, that one, yes. And um, it's green and cream, I suppose. And I know I bought it from Who Fish, my darling friend at um, at Dina at Whofish in Hawkesburn. Great boutique, by the way, for anybody who hasn't yet discovered it. But, Shauna, I can't remember the brand. I will uh, – A note to self, I'll go and look on the label. Although, knowing me, because I always get such a scratchy, itching neck with labels, I've probably – Um, cut it off but I'll check that thank you for the compliment and James Norcross dear Caroline and Corrie first great firstly great show thanks so much I wanted to suggest a book to review stolen focus by Johan Hari you might have already had it as a recommendation it's really thought provoking and challenging not a fun read but so worthwhile I don't know this one if anybody does let us know about it Um, and James says thanks for your podcast and I look forward to it each week yeah, and he sent us a picture, Cara, of the mobile library that operates here in Port Stephens in New South Wales. A beautiful lovely place, place to Port come Stevens. and visit the next time you're up this way. Not quite Port Ferry, but still lovely. I'm sure it's just as beautiful as Port Ferry. James, thank you for sending that. I uh, Hats off to all the uh, lending libraries that travel around regional Victoria, New South Wales, everywhere. And also, Cara, speaking of regional friends, can I just say a big hello to Daniel? Remember, Daniel was a medico from South Australia who found himself in Geelong, abandoned with lockdowns, and he couldn't get home. And we delivered some books to him in Geelong through the bookshop. He became a great friend of the pod, and then he sent me my Nutribullet
0: as a gift of thank oh, that's you right, for delivering you couldn't books. couldn't afford a Nutribullet.
1: <laughs> Well, he checked in the other day, and I'd said, funnily enough, Daniel. It's so lovely to hear from you. I was th- I think about you every time I bring out my Nutribullet. And yesterday I made pesto, which was a little bit of a fib because I was in COVID. I didn't want to tell him that. But I'd made pesto the week before. And I think about that gift and that kindness all the time. So
0: a shout out to Daniel for, um, hope you've had a nice Easter and all that sort of stuff. Speaking of which, I've got a great cake recipe today while we're talking recipes. You've been glued to the television because you haven't had much else to do. Mm. So you're going to talk about the second series of Bridgerton, which I haven't watched. I've got a book. Corrie, um, just quickly, thank you to Maureen McGee. You've sent us a wonderful and very interesting email about the coverage of the Cyril Rioli racism issues at Hawthorne. Um, Look, I really enjoyed it. I agree with your comments about Jordan Lewis talking about it on AFL 360. And don't worry, we are not going to let this go away. I feel that there are some at Hawthorne who are trying to write this off as, um, in the words of Geoff Kennett, the um, agenda of one journalist, which is just absolute, well, it's just bullish. It's just not true. And um, it's a, it, it is it is clearly an issue and it is something that Hawthorne need to look at. It's no good just playing personalities here. So um, thank you, Maureen. But, Cory, we're going to move on to... Um, just the, not a big chat about the election campaign, but I'm just wondering, given that we don't think either, well, uh, okay, I don't think, I'm not particularly whooped on either leader at the moment. I'm so not whooped. I'm not really whooped on Scott Morrison and I'm not really whooped on Anthony Albanese. Um, Definition co- of whoop. Impressed. I don't think, <coughs> uh, Anthony Albanese is not a good campaigner. So I don't know about you, but what do you think in the end is going to decide this election? Because I'm not sure it's going to be the leaders.
1: I don't think it'll be the leaders because they are, even as you said, Kara. They, they lack that whoop factor. And if one was more charismatic than the other, you'd definitely be saying, oh, yes, this is what's going to, this is how this is going to play out here. Well, Morrison is a better
0: campaigner, clearly. He's a much better campaigner. Yep. But
1: also, well, look, I won't go into um, personal views of, of the Missteps and the statements and everything, but we do have to remember that it's we're judging a government on its three year history, not just on the first week of media conferences. So, but Anthony Albanese, I think everybody's agreeing, just had a shocker of a week last week. And and in my COVID state, I had very little to do except watch telly and read newspapers ad nauseum. And I found myself, Carol, toward the end of the week, it was like um, it was like a fury was being unleashed. I was so angry. On one hand, there I am obsessively watching CNN and what's happening in Ukraine and watching, um, people like Vladimir Zelensky fighting for his country's right to have some sort of democratic say in the way the people live their lives and the way they're governed. And here we are in Australia. There was a, there was a, um, You know, one of those vox pop things, talking to people. What do you think about the election? And the number of people have said, "Oh, I don't care. They're all bad." And I felt like saying, "This is your right. You have to start getting engaged, everyone." So on that level, I became really angry. But it has to be about issues, Caro. And there are there are so many issues that people can get their teeth into, whatever your preference may be. But um, interestingly, I was telling you on Twitter there was some. Louise Milligan, the journalist, put out there to her thousands of followers, just interested to know if this is an issues-based election, what are people interested in? Now, given there's probably a particular audience with a particular demographic skew that follow Louise Milligan, but they said climate change and health and leadership and integrity. And that's probably where the ball settles for me as well. And I remain underwhelmed by... It's not as though there are no issues around in the world at the moment. This is probably one of the most important elections we've had in the last 30 years. And other, another person on the Vox Pop said, oh, all leaders are terrible, everybody goes to Canberra, what duds and everything. Well, we know there are quality candidates because look at the independence, the field of independence that's coming forth. Our friend Jane Caro is standing. All these wonderful... Um, all these wonderful former journalists, former public servants, people who are a lot of women, which is great to see, but a lot of people are feeling the need to get involved. So we can't say there's not a quality of candidate. Perhaps the problem lies with the parties and the way they pre-select them.
0: Yeah, I think that um, certainly the incumbents, certainly the government has written off a couple of seats to those independents and isn't really going to worry. They're going to worry more about the impact on other seats. I'd love to think that Louise Milligan and you are right, but I think it's going to come down to the economy. I think it's going to come down to money. I think that people are just even more obsessed, given um, the threat of interest rate rises, um, the property market absolutely going nuts in so many parts of Australia. certainly in regional Victoria, which is an area close to our hearts, and regional New South Wales, it's just gone nuts. I think people are more worried about money than ever. They're more insecure than ever. Small businesses suffered so much during COVID. I'd love... I certainly think the environment has become more of a priority for most people, and I still think that Scott Morrison's biggest problem is with women, and he's going to have to turn that around to win, but I think in the end it's going to be the economy. And I'm not sure if Anthony Albanese can convince people to vote for him on the basis of giving them, you know, a safer future. Cara, on that uh, point about the economy, it is worth noting, I read a really
1: interesting article over the weekend about Josh Frydenberg's chances in Kooyong. He's severely under threat by um, the independent candidate, Monique Ryan. In fact, there are some, I don't know what our friend Anthony Green thinks, but there are some who are saying that at the moment she uh, she, she is more popular and, and she'll get more votes than he will, which could mean that
0: we have, if the Libs are returned, we may not have Josh Frydenberg as the Treasurer. She's an extraordinarily popular candidate. I mean, her launch last week, there were thal- there was. Several thousand people there. It was quite extraordinary. is it remarkable? It is. But, oh, look, I just don't think, as Anthony Green said, Victoria's necessarily going to affect us. They'll lose some, they'll win some, probably will end up even. It would because... be significant to lose the Treasurer. Oh, it'd be incredibly significant because I think Josh Frydenberg's really been one of the more popular um, politicians. more mo- And government. more moderate too. Yeah. No, so, if he, so if he goes, watch out, it could be... Peter Dutton's hands all over the place, but Corey, it's a long campaign. It is a, a long, long campaign. campaign.
1: It is, and one week at a time, Caro, as they say in footy. Are you so, across
0: what's going on with Greg Norman?
1: No, you clearly are. I have a view on the Saudis. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I mean, which you won't be surprised to hear, but um, let's talk about Greg Norman and the Saudis. This story has crept up over the last few weeks and months, and I mean, Greg Norman is one of those Australian sporting heroes that. You're just never quite sure where he sits in our... And I I suppose it became a bigger deal, or I thought about it more after Shane Warne died for some reason. We had this discussion over a lunch a couple of weeks ago. Um, In fact, at my first ever sports editor, Ron Reid, I had lunch with him and a group of other journos and my husband, of course, and Ron's wife, and we talked about where Shane Warne sat and... He's probably... When you say where Greg Norman or Shane Warne sit, where do you you mean in the public's consciousness? Yep, Yep. and And also in success. Now, Greg Norman was the number one golfer for many, many years. He made a huge career out of golf, but he also was... um, famous and maybe we loved him more in the end because of those tragic losses, particularly at the Masters, you know, and particularly the Nick Faldo, that dreadful final mm, round. People but, still call him a choker. Yeah, but he did. He didn't always choke and he did win two magnificent British Opens, one of which I covered at Turnbury, which was one of the highlights of my journalistic career, just to be there with the late, great Michael Gordon. We followed him round on that third. Anyway. Was that when Seve Ballesteros asked you out for a date? No, no, that was several years earlier. Um, in, um, but getting back to Greg Norman. so we'll get back to that, Jane. He's, he's basically turned his back on the USPGA. He's um, gone into business with the Saudis. He's accepted, he won't say exactly how much, the rumour is that he's earning $50 million a year from the Saudis to basically start a breakaway tournament. Um, the, the, they've been accused of money washing, basically, and Saudi Arabia's human rights record continues to come up no-one is prepared to join this tour. The schedule, it's going to pay $255 million in prize money for the eight tournaments, and Greg Norman is sort of saying that it's almost like he's saying, I'm a rebel with a cause. You know, the USPGA is dominant. It, it bullied me. It tried to prevent me one year for playing in the Australian Open, my Open. I thought that was a bit crocodile oh. tears, Greg. And, and but,
1: was is this the one that Rory McElvoy was going to join?
0: I'm not sure if Rory was going to join it. I think Phil, Phil Mickelson, Mickelson. Yeah, Phil Mickelson at one stage, but he seems to have turned away yes. now. Greg Norman has become a pariah in America. The U.S. Masters on the, didn't invite him, and he gets invited every year. He got sent on the eve of the tournament a ground pass. I mean, the ultimate in insult. He's just been turned away by everyone. He gave an interview last week where he admitted that it had, you know, it had stung. It had stung him to be on the outer, and But he doesn't care if no-one plays in this tournament because a group of kids are going to play and someone's going to win this massive prize pool. And in the end, all the other golfers will say, well, we're going to join it too because this is crazy. Well, what he's saying is money justifies everything. He stupidly, when asked if he was paid a fortune to do it, and the rumour, the strong informed source is that it's 50 million a year, was I wouldn't say a fortune. What's a fortune? I mean, the absolute lack of... (laughs) Being in any way in touch (laughs) with the average American, Australian, Englishman, you know, Asian. It it is just insane. And, you know, every time he makes another comment, another atrocity comes to light or an historic atrocity, a current atrocity by the people in power in Saudi Arabia. And I think Greg Norman has completely destroyed his reputation forever. I I don't see how he comes back from this. No, look,
1: there is There um, is there there is a lot to be said about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam, also known as MBS, around the world. Jamal, Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi's family would have a lot to say about that. But I think if you get into bed with the Saudis um, and they're looking at their record on human rights uh, and corruption and bribery, they're... I can understand why the American – well, not the American golfers, the entire international golfing community has turned their back on Greg Norman. He's gone into bed with the devil. I mean, the USPGA – And I, ad- I, admi- I admire them for actually standing up to it.
0: Yeah, the, 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 uh, that's true. And the PGA. I mean, look, they probably are a bunch of bullies. They they run a complete autocracy and um, they do it very successfully. And that show sure, me an
1: international sporting code that doesn't that tour sure is
0: <laughs> worth a lot of money. And the golf riders, you know the American golf riders, um there aren't that many, they could be a little bit more independent.
1: Why it- would they they get they get, they get they're on the they're in the best lurk
0: of all. I mean, you said what a highlight it was. You get flown around the world to cover golf tournaments. Oh, I've never covered golf in America, but it, it, you, it's you, completely you, different to covering the European um, tour. You stay European in all those
1: beautiful country clubs. You you can you can easily sidle up to and chat to all your golfing heroes. Uh, it's a pretty cushy job. Well, the golf four at days the... at Augusta. Mm-mm. Oh, it's
0: it's easier to go and talk to a golfer on a putting green before the um, – certainly before the British Open than it is to get an interview with a Western Bulldogs footballer. I mean, it's just ridiculous how absolutely difficult – how what a closed shop AFL has become and how out of touch the players have become with their audience. But I do remember being at an investigative journalist and editor's conference in New Orleans some many years ago, back in the 90s, and um, we were told by one of the American lecturers at one of the segments – one of the sessions um, – You know, the American golf media, one of the most sycophantic, um, cowardly groups of journalists in the world, and this guy goes, hell, their lifetime lifetime ambition is to have lunch with Freddie Couples. I mean, they were just absolutely smashed, and it it is true. However... Quite apart from that, Greg Norman has grown very rich from the US tour, despite the fact he never won a US major. He won again and again and again in the US. And he was, you know, loved in the US for many, many years. He lives in the US. He's got that massive compound in Florida and, you know, friends with all those presidents, you know, some of them dodgy, some of them not. And, and now he's done this. He's, he's really blotted his copybook mm. anyway. There you go. Take that, Greg. Um, as many... Golf journos do after a long round. I think it's time now not to go to the bar, Corrie, but to go to the cocktail cabinet. Miles, welcome to the show. Before you tell us about your red wine recommendation for this week, I've got to say that April Mix Dozen was absolutely superb. Excellent. In particular, the Rieslings. And I think the Gundelock Fritz, the overseas one, was an absolute cracker because of course Corrie you're comparing two different wines of each type in the I think there's four whites and eight reds in So the- one Aussie yeah, that's and right. one one Aussie, one European. One Aussie, one right? euro. Yep. Yeah. And the Sons of Eden Freya was the other one from the Eden Valley Riesling. They were both absolutely beautiful. And my wonderful in laws, Jane and Johan, well Roses my daughter's in-laws. The Fockers, better known ca- as the Who came Fokkers. to visit on Easter Sunday. <laughs> um, Jane is a big fan of the podcast and as a result Jane. went to Prince Wine Store to have a look at it, even though oh, he great. was only in Melbourne for a couple of days. And they bought the most beautiful, brought the most beautiful Shabley from Prince Wine Store. Oh. They said it was like being in a treasure trove. They loved it. So yeah, if fun. if you are running short of time with the mixed dozen, I just walked mm. in and said, "Give me a box, guys." Well, this is what I wanted and to it was ask. All packed because, up
1: because our studio is not far from Prince Wine Store, and I have to come and pick up. Your colleague Gab has put aside a couple of things for me. They yeah, put Can a little just, treat in one of your boxes. Do I have to too? wait while somebody gathers together the April special?
2: No, we always we I try to I try to get it about a week ahead so it gets all packed up, bought to the bought to the store. Both stores, the Sydney store and the and the um, store here in Melbourne. Is there a May one and coming up? There is a May one coming up, yeah. So Great. do we, So do I just say I'm the, a potty." Yeah, I'm here to grab the April mixed dozen. There's,
0: a, there's boxes sitting at the you. front.
2: Yeah, they're right at the front. And yep. we have a few other right. mixed dozens. There's like an Italian mixed dozen of French Was beer.
0: there a dud, Caro? Well, I haven't drunk all of them. <laughs> um, and no. I'm not so much of a red drinker, mm. but the reds seem to go down fairly well with various people. That's so, yes. Well, a little yep. bit
2: of everything for everyone, hopefully. The s- you know. Syrah,
0: there's a really good syrah there. Syrah, Syrah that got, um, got great acclaim. But, Miles, what are you going to tell us we should be buying this week?
2: Well, good segue, going to talk about Shiraz today too. So I thought oh, I had this, you know, I thought cool, cool, cooler weather, cool climate, Syrah, Shiraz might be the pick. So I've got two. I've got, got um, Clonakilla Hilltops from, from Hilltops in Canberra and oh. I've got the Mount Langy Cliff Edge. Um, Shiraz, and that's Grampian. So everyone probably, well, a lot of the, I guess, Victorian listeners would probably know Matt Lange, pretty well known. Um, And Clona Killers obviously put Shiraz Vionier on the map, but this is their, these are both the entry level, uh, you know, they're they're the entry level sort of wines, estate wines from these producers. But I mean, they're just, I mean, they're consistently amazing. They're just fantastic examples of of cool climate Shirazes, but in slightly different sort of styles.
1: Pardon pardon my yep. inexperience here, but I wouldn't have thought Canberra was necessarily a really popular wine-growing region.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. For me, over the, say, past maybe five to sort of ten years, it's probably become one of the best producers of Shiraz in the country, wow. I, I think. That stylistically, that's, you know, I have a sort of, I guess I'm exposed to a lot of European wine, so they have a European styling that softer, sort of spicy, kind of more medium-bodied, mid-weight sort of style Shirazes, but really fantastic stuff. Yeah, they produce awesome, awesome wine. Great there's, Riesling too, yes, good there's, Chardonnay. There's a
0: um, vineyard Real, called Quarry Hill and yeah. I, I stumbled upon it one day and the house my grandfather built many, many years ago that we grew up in was called Quarry Hill. So I bought some for my mother and my aunts. And many the, a Scrabble game at Quarry
1: Hill. Yes, over yes. The, years. the
0: Quarry Hill Riesling. Mm. which is just – I brought it at Jugeong but it's—it's it's, looking at it on the map, it doesn't look far from Canberra, the actual vineyard. Well, I don't think amazing. anything's
2: – that's the thing with Canberra too. You know, <laughs> Half an hour outside of Canberra, you're right in sort of the country there. And, and the winemaking country is not that far either. So, I mean, if you're ever in Canberra and you've got the time, it's not too hard to get out to see some of these producers. So, yeah, maybe a little less known, but we're, we're – at Prince, we're certainly big fans of a lot of Canberra wines. We think they're making some really good stuff, so definitely –
0: and tell us about right. the Mount Langi cliff
2: edge. So the Mount Langi cliff edge. So the 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 hilltops. So that's a little sub-region of Canberra. So that killer is a a bit more sort of savoury, sort of spiced sort of style, and a little bit maybe maybe a touch lighter. The 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 Mount Langy cliff edge. I think it's their younger vines. It's a bit of a barrel selection. So their better stuff goes. They have a bunch of top end Shirazes, um, and this is the sort of younger vines material. I, I understand in some selections, and it's a little more. It's a little more plush. The fruit's a little more sort of soft and kind of lush on it. It's a little fuller. It's a little bit richer, but it has that lovely sort of sweet spice and clove and that lovely cool sort of fruits that you get from these more sort of cooler growing regions. Oh, Okay, um, really beautiful. It's the same. It's not a. It's not a big wine. It's maybe a little fuller than the than the hilltops, but not is quite that what a you lot. mean
0: by entry level?
2: No, just just. They're sort of – they start, it starts at that sort of cliff edge Shiraz and then it goes up to, I think, the Talus and then they have another single vineyard and then the Mount Langy, which is their sort of flagship Shiraz. Okay. And Killer has the Hilltops and it has one called Oreada, which is a little Shiraz Viognier from a different part. So is it and less expensive? And it has expensive. the Shiraz is... Viognier. So it's the sort of least expensive okay. of all the estate wines produced.
0: And what I do can, we drink okay. it so it's with It's entry miles? level,
2: but I mean, really – I mean, they're $34 each, both of them. Yep. I mean, and they're just – I mean, they could be fifty dollars wines. I think they're stellar wines. They're what really do we good. drink them with? Oh, I don't know, roast lamb or roast beef, roast or beef, a nice steak, I think any roast meats would be, would be really salad. nice with it. Yeah. Ox cheek, ox
0: cheek. <laughs> You're whipping that up this week, are you, Cory?
1: No, I've never made a recipe. Something like that.
2: anything, anything like that. Any, any sort of red meats would be real, grilled, red meats would be really lovely. There's something With about the word the ox,
1: it's a bit like goat. It makes you think tough meat, don't you reckon? I oh,
2: love goat though. Do you? Yeah, and yeah, goat it's is like slow cooked. And yeah, goat's <laughs> never tough. People
0: take such time over cooking mm. it because it's goat, oh. I think. I if can't, you do I can't get eat
1: it. a
2: goat. Goat curry? Like good goat curry?
1: Yeah. No, no, no. I don't, I don't eat things that I would <laughs> pat.
0: Well, you wouldn't pat a sheep? You, no, you who would pat, pat a it? baby you pat calf?
1: Well, I might pat a baby calf, but not like, you know, not in with intense emotion.
2: <laughs> Goats are kind of cute. It's true.
0: Goat curry. Goat works really well
1: you know in you curry. I agree. Yeah, you know you can do yeah. goat yoga, Miles. Have you seen that? Yeah, you do yoga and a
0: goat stand's on your back and it's supposed to be very good for your zen and your balance. Oh, I couldn't think of anything worse. Sounds crazy. I'd rather eat a goat curry than have a goat stand on my back. Um, A good goat will do
2: that. (laughs) I was waiting for someone to say that. you can do it and let us know. (laughs) Miles,
0: the Clonacilla Hilltops, Shiraz, Shiraz, and the Mount Lange Cliff Edge, Shiraz, both retailing at around $34. $34. That's a wonderful recommendation. Thank you very much. And... um, we love the April mix dozen. We're looking Excellent. forward to the May maybe yes.
1: we could Maybe we Definitely. could pop a couple of th- those two Shirazes in the May mix, Miles. Would that be a possibility?
2: In your mix? No, I'm doing Pinot for May.
1: Oh, okay. All oh, happy Pinot. with that. Yeah. Oh, I might wait till May now.
2: Yeah. We'll I, have have to to- d- I have to double all my orders for... for- the Pinot Packs, they're very popular. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we'll be, <laughs> Corrie, we'll be we'll be yeah. hearing a lot more about uh, Prince Wine Store when we have our live Mother's Day event, Corrie, oh, yeah. on May the 5th. Yep, sounds good. Fabulous to see you. Thanks for
2: calling by. Thanks for having me.
0: That was the cocktail cabinet for Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Please visit princewinestore.com.au and tell them that Caro and Corrie sent you. Corrie, what's the time for now?
1: B.S.F., which you declared the other day is your favourite segment of the show and I felt a bit sorry for grumpy and six quick questions and all the other nice things that we do. But anyway, on to Caro's favourite segment and she's going
0: to discuss a book today, Poddies. Well, I've gone back to an old favourite, Corrie, an old favourite author in Anne Tyler. Um, I saw this book in a shop um, a little while ago and I thought, oh, that looks really good. It was the latest Anne Tyler at the time, and it's called Clock Dance. It's a wonderful um, novel about a woman. Another family drama by Anne Tyler. Well, it's <laughs> sort of a family drama. It's more bored with Anne these days. No, don't be. Really? Don't be. Don't um, oh, convince me. Well, it's like... It's like catching up with an old friend. I mean, my, probably my favourite one of hers ever was Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. I love Ladder of Years, which was a favourite of our book club. Of course, The Accidental Tourist, which became a fabulous film with what William Hurt. What was the
1: Hirsch. lovely one about the Korean child, the um, adopted Korean child who goes to live with the American family?
0: Was that the not the amateur marriage? No, Saint Maybe, upside down, something, patchwork right? planet. Yeah, I can't remember. That, Latter- that was a good one. Oh well, anyway, the patchwork planet's another brilliant one. Um, there's a, and there's a new one out which you're going to tell us about in a moment. But Clock Dance is about a woman who is your ultimate sort of passive passenger through life. She's very clever. She has an unusual and quite disturbing family situation, which she never really quite comes to terms with. And occasionally during this book, which jumps in sort of decade or two decade increments as it goes along, she realises how damaging her mother probably was to herself and her younger sister, with whom she has a very distant relationship for most of the book. She's a, a wonderful character. She's a smart little girl who just completely wastes her education when she marries very, very young Her name is Willa, and basically her life changes. Um, This terrible thing happens to her as a very young child. She marries way too young, really, after a weird incident on a plane. She then loses her husband way too young. By then she's the mother of two small boys. And it's only – well, she's exactly my age, 61, when she gets a phone call – And um, the girlfriend, the ex-girlfriend of one of her sons has been shot. And the neighbour assumes that Willa is the grandmother of the small child who's been left at home when the mother's been shot. In fact, Willa's not the grandmother. It's just her son's ex-girlfriend's child. And for no apparent reason, Willa gets on a plane and travels across America to look after this child. And it's the first thing she's ever really done, which she does with a mind of her own, and she doesn't really know why she's done it. And, Corrie, oh, it's just a wonderful book about renewal, about families, about the hopelessness of people's lives and ultimately about the triumphs. And it's just... It's Anne Tyler's language that I just absolutely love. I really recommend. She's Popper. very accessible. She's a lovely writer. She did declare
1: in 2015 she wasn't going to write any more novels, and I think think then she's turned out about four or five. Miss Jane has reminded me that the book I just, I, I mentioned about the Korean child is called Digging to America. Oh, that's right. That's a great book. We yeah. did that as a book club book, we didn't did. we? We um, did. And her new book is called French Braid, and this sounds like another one right up your alley, Caro. It's... Uh, it's it's set across six generations of a Baltimore family, um, and it starts in 1959 and goes up to the summer of 2020, um, which I imagine takes them into COVID territory, actually. Um, and it's the story of the Garrett family, husband and wife Robin and Mercy, their children Alice, Lily, and David, and we meet them at a holiday in a Maryland Lake resort when the kids are in their teens and we've Marilyn. I think we say Marilyn. Well, you can say Marilyn. <laughs> Why yes. <laughs> Just makes me think of Miss Prissy on um, do you remember Foghorn Leghorn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you know we were talking the other night about how politically incorrect the old Looney Tunes cartoons are now? Oh. You know when you think about it. Let's not go there. Off topic. Anyway,
0: that's Anne Tyler's um, Clock Dance by Caro. Well, it this one was actually written in 2018, so it is quite recent. It opens in 1967, not far after French Braid, and I would highly recommend it. Now, Corrie, you have watched the second series of Bridgerton, that weird, raunchy... Oh, not weird, Caro. Not weird, well, it, well, it Wash your mouth out. It's weird in that it completely revisits history, doesn't it, and makes some of the major characters of British not-so-long-ago history black.
1: Well, it's really terrific to see... And mixed race. Uh, it's terrific to see a Regency-era drama, a period drama, that reflects England of today. And it makes you realise how we've just grown up on a diet of white-skinned, prissy... I mean, I love Kieran Knightley as in *Pride and Prejudice*. I love, you know, um, who's our squeeze, Colin Firth
0: as Mister Darcy. Jennifer Eale also in *Pride and Prejudice*.
1: Yes, I, I love seeing all of these characters, uh, but it's really wonderful to see see this diversity and. You don't even think about it for a second once you're engaged in the plot. And the reason is because the acting is so incredible. So so the inquiry and the curiosity that we had in Bridget and One, like how on earth could the main character, um, the Duke, Simon, um, how on earth could he be black and in society the way he was and at the end of the program, marries the woman of his dreams. I'm not going to give anything away in case people haven't watched Bridget. Oh, they
0: sorry. Bad luck if you haven't no, watched No, no, no. I'm, very, I'm very, so sick of these no, spoiler alerts.
1: I'm very you're, – you're harsh, Carol. You're mean to our, our listeners. So uh, – but – but, and you kind of suspend a disbelief a bit that Queen Charlotte is actually um, of a Guyanan background – um, played absolutely brilliantly by the actress Golda Rochevelle. Well, she sort of explains herself in the first series, doesn't she? I mean, yeah, she married the King. That's who was right. White, but but it's and there was always there's always been some some discussion that Queen Charlotte was of a coloured background, but. In series two, all of this is just it. it like the novelty is gone. And what you realise when you're in the hands of somebody like Anju Andar, who is the actress who plays Lady Danbury, who is the society queen and the best friend of Queen Charlotte, she's a, she's a Shakespearean. Uh, actress of note. She's worked with the Royal Shakespearean Company in the National Theatre for years. She has the pedigree of of a Judi Dench. She is such a brilliant actor. And she and Golda playing Queen Charlotte really get really hammered up this time. And, and, and they're given more scenes, better lines. Queen Charlotte becomes quite integral into the, into the whole plot of this. which he isn't in the first series so no. much No so it's so I, so I actually think this series 2 is way better than series 1 So for those who haven't come across Bridgeton, it's based on the Julia Quinn novels of the Bridgerton family a family uh, that uh, with a with a younger young widowed mother Uh, Lady Violet, who has uh, six, I think, children, six or seven children, and each of Julia Quinn's novels is about the love and the marriages, the courting of each of her children. So the first episode was Daphne, who is now married to Simon the Duke, and the second series, this one, is about Viscount Anthony um, uh, Bridgerton the eldest son, who, upon his father 's sudden death when uh, Lady Violet was pregnant with their last child and and Anthony was uh, probably looking at it maybe about sixteen or seventeen in the in the recollections, um, he suddenly finds himself the head of the family at such an early age, and he is, he is a heavily weighted young man with this responsibility and this is at the crux of and too. Can Anthony find true love? Can he relax? Can he just find himself? And there are lots of wonderful flashback scenes, Carol. You and I love a flashback and he goes back to the death of his father and the various responsibilities. Some brilliant acting by the actress who plays Lady Violet, um, Ruth Jemmel, um, in those, in those early days after her husband has um, died, and she's dealing with the grief of a young widow and having to give birth to a baby and just saying, take me, leave the baby, take me. So the scenes of the grief were very profound. But can Anthony find love? Enter the Sharma sisters. And there is Kate, the elder Sharma sister, and her younger sister, Eloise, who where they're, they're an Indian family and they've come back to um, England, the home of their mother, and they're going to launch Eloise onto the, into, the England, into the London season. And Kate is her elder sister and Kate is the one who's fierce, determined, independent, never wants to get married. Well, guess what happens? I'll just leave it there. Anyway, at the, at the heart of all of this is Julie Andrews' brilliant narration as Lady Whistledown, the author of The Scandal Sheet, and and at the end of series one, we know the identity of Lady Whistledown. But series two, it becomes more and more tense because will Lady Whistledown's uh, identity be revealed?
0: I can't remember. She's, even no, though no don't give no, anything away. No, I'm not going to give it away, but we know who it is. We know who it is. But it's never unmasked, is it, at the, end of the first series? It's never unmasked. And yep.
1: Eloise, who's the, the third child, or no, actually fourth child in the Bridgerton family, who's the very smart Prickly one, who in season this season two, it's her debutante year, who's her debut in court, and she's very much a tomboy and and is is resisting, Um, but she's on the hunt for who is Lady Whistledown, and so there's an amazing few episodes where that comes to the fore, and we're setting ourselves up beautifully, Caro, for series three, which Eloise, uh, toward the end of series two, she meets young Theo Sharp. Guess what? Not of her class. That old story, who shares her love of big ideas and changing the world. Um, There is a bit of sex, not as much. I mean, it's a bit sad. This is just purely the perv now and me talking here. But um, the actor who played um, um, uh, Regé-Jean Page, who played uh, the Duke of Hastings, Simon, um, was really good at... And and not reluctant, one might say, to take his clothes off. Oh, he was. was There were lots of bare. Every five minutes, (laughs) there were lots of bare bottom scenes and lots of Jane's blocking her ears. It is a bit early in the morning, (laughs) I know, but. He, he is not in this series, and, the, and I was, it, like a lot of Bridgerton fans are really upset about this. He was offered series two. They said, please come along. You're not the main character. We've now moved on to Anthony, the second child, but Daphne is in it. They just explained Simon's absence. He's away with work and so on. He was offered £50,000 an episode to do it, and he declined because he said, the circle of my character is complete. So that's an interesting thing. Anyway, we don't get to see him in his bare bottom, but there is a little bit. So of he's shagging. not in it at
0: all. He's not in it at all. Oh well, that is still, a lot of people would be disappointed in that. <laughs> but Caro, the costumes
1: are better. The the use of um, there's this amazing scene in in scene in uh, the first show, the first episode, where they arrive at a ball, and I mean the the set is incredible, and inside they're doing parlor dancing to a Strings version of Madonna's Material Girl, I am a material girl living in a
0: material world.
1: It is amazing the way they use the contemporary with the old, well, and the, you just clap it all the, up in the
0: first. Um series were oh, incredible as the dresses. As well. the, the lighting. Dresses. Yep.
1: And if anybody, speaking of pink frocks, there are some amazing pink and pale pink dresses, ladies, just
0: note. Oh, so well, that's bridgeton Corey gives a big oh, thumbs up to Bridget. It
1: was the only good thing about COVID,
0: Carol. Off, the, off the back of the Gilded Age, which I must say I really loved as well. And, and it had an interesting take on race as well, although not not nearly as radical as Bridgerton, but um, very interesting. Well, Corrie, I've been baking and... You're I've... following my pineapple um praise. Yes, I am. And I didn't mean to, but... I was flicking through that wonderful cookbook. It's actually Clem's, but um, it's living at my place called Always Add Lemon by Daniel Alvarez. One of my favourite books. It's a great cookbook. And I was doing one of her slow-cooked, in fact, a braised lamb recipe for Easter. And I was flicking through the cookbook and I found her pineapple upside-down cake. It, this is the best recipe I say that because I did it and it worked and it wasn't too difficult. Um, <laughs>
1: That's okay.
0: That's what this segment's all about, isn't that, it? <laughs> look, honestly, Danielle says you can use any fruit and my original idea was to poach some quince and use quince because I had some, my quince are all finely ripe and they look so beautiful. But I ran out of time and if you're going to use pineapple, make sure it's ripe and it's half a pineapple. So I bought a pineapple and I did that instead. The basic um, premise is that you cook brown sugar, third of a cup of brown sugar and two tablespoons of butter in a saucepan. Let it bubble up and then you pour it into the bottom of your greased and lined cake tin, about 22 to 25 centimetre cake tin. Spring form is better. Put that. You know the trick with the baking paper, don't you? We've talked about that. Yes, yes.
1: Scrunch um, it up, everybody. Scrunch well, it up well, and wet it.
0: Well, I actually, yeah, I, I just cut mine and it, it worked really well. But anyway, that is a great tip, the scrunching up. Um, Pour that brown sugar butter stuff in, slice and chop up your pineapple, thinly slice it and dice it and core it, of course, and skin it. Put that on top of the brown sugar and then you make your cake batter, which is um, the only sort of, I suppose, rogue ingredient and it absolutely makes it, is about a, a tablespoon and a half of ground fresh ginger. Oh, so, oh, yum. It is just absolutely beautiful. You've got to separate your eggs. So you, you know, you do the you cream, the um, butter and sugar. You add the egg yolks. You actually beat the egg whites separately till they're stiff like you're making a pavlova. You add that at the end. The dry ingredients are flour, baking powder, baking soda and salt. And you add whole milk at the end as well, curry. And then you pour the batter over the cake cook it in the oven. Anyway, it's in the show notes, Miss Jane. I emailed it to you this morning. And did morning. you serve
1: it with cream?
0: Thick cream. I actually served it with thin and thick cream. You wouldn't want cream. to do ice cream, the vanilla bean ice cream. Well, she says to serve it with ice cream warm. But sweet. I sweet. Well, I, I only had cream and thick cream. It was perfect. It was. would um, be nice to serve it straight away. You would let it sit in the tin for a few minutes before you turn it out and it does stick a bit at the top but you get that lovely toffee sort of thing. Um, I'd love to serve it warm, but I served it room temperature. Absolutely delicious.
1: Great. That's Caro's pineapple upside down cake. And we thank Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, for sponsoring well our show and also our BSF segment. Corrie, you're grumpy. There's so much to be grumpy about, but I thought I'd go for the totally trivial Caro because... There's just too much bad news out there to even contemplate being grumpy. There's so much to be grumpy about. So I've chosen MasterChef season 14, no one more excited than I, cannot wait, heard they started filming. And this year they're doing fans versus faves, which is they're bringing (laughs) back 12 (laughs) former MasterChef contestants. And twelve new contestants. I'm not sure how they play off against one another, but no offence to Julie Goodwin, but if I see her pop up one more time in the MasterChef kitchen, Julie, you've had your go.
0: Okay. Oh, it's I time don't feel to give, Julie ever really. It's really time
1: to give someone else a go. I, look, Billy's coming back, win. who I love. Sashi's fun. Manoli. There are a few favourites, but the the thing I loved most about last year's um last year's MasterChef, apart from I think the three new hosts that do a terrific job. But I loved the new, fresh talent. I just loved seeing these young cooks, a lot of them young, not all of them, but blossoming and taking on board judges' advice, having no set agenda, willing to learn. And I'm just not sure how that's going to play out with the fans v. Faves. So, MasterChef, I will be reporting back on this, Caroline. I know it's a big issue nationally. I just... I've just... I'm you over flicked it. Chef. yeah. Well, you see, I flicked it two years ago, the first lockdown year, when um, Poe and when they all came back because yeah. I just they, they lost me after <laughs> about the second episode. I just couldn't be bothered. And then last year I was glued on because – so I'm just not really happy about this new move. Anyway, of all the things to be grumpy about, that's where I've landed today.
0: Corrie, I was thinking after being stuck inside for seven or eight days you would have had a lot to be grumpy about and – the fact that you're worrying about MasterChef tells me you're out. You're, you're better. about to hear in a minute what I was really
1: grumpy about, Carol, in six quick questions.
0: Okay, well, let's kick them off for Red Energy. Whose phone call won't you miss this week? Peninsula Health. <laughs> so once I registered that I had COVID. That was very good of you because not text- everyone bothers, do oh, they?
1: Well, I'm a good citizen, Caroline. Uh, texting, 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 <laughs> texting. Follow the prompts enter in so I follow the prompts and the first thing they ask you is your name great and then your age so I put in 23rd of the 3rd 61 reject 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 and then mm. I receive more texts you mm. haven't registered you haven't registered then I receive I, I, I can I just tell you on day 2 and 3 of COVID Caro I was feeling lousy I do I, I, you know I don't, I don't want to I'm not going to bury the lead here I felt really lousy so I'm lying on the bed in a feverish coughing state And the coughing has reactivated my old war wound, the whooping cough. So I'm not in a great place. And I'm getting phone calls from Peninsular Health, you know, call us, call us. So eventually I call them back. This is after five texts and a couple of calls. And they say, you haven't registered. Well, I can't because you won't accept my birth date. Oh, that's ridiculous, says the chap. So he starts to put in. And he said, I said, "I, I said, you have to do it for me. I said, I am beyond consciousness almost. You have to do it. And he put it in. he said oh, your birthday's coming up as the 23rd of the 3rd, 2022. I said, Anthony, that would mean I was four weeks old. Now, come <laughs> on. This went on and on and on. Anyway, they eventually accepted that I was 61. It was just, you know, I don't know how people who are not uh, phone savvy, and I'm not necessarily picking on older folk here, but certainly if my mother was alive and going through something like this, she would not have bothered registering. So please make it a bit easier for everybody. That was that would be my message there.
0: Yes, one sort of advantage, I guess, of getting COVID overseas. I mean, I tested, I knew I had it, I stayed inside, and I didn't tell anyone—not not of anyone in authority. Um, Caro, my question to you:
1: Before he leaves the AFL, what should Gillan McLaughlin's number one priority be?
0: Well, there are so many, but it has got to be to fix the umpiring problem. And well, you can't fix it in the next six months, clearly, but. He's set on this path. He apologised to the umpires on behalf of everyone at the AFL and in the game at the start of the season. Everyone's carrying on as we're sitting here today about players lifting up their arms and protesting at decisions and having 50-metre penalties paid against them. Be consistent. Pay the penalties. As Chris Scott, the Geelong coach, said after the game on Easter Monday, we know the rules now. You can't dissent. You can't argue with an umpire. Even lifting your arms up. Which Chris Scott used to do all the time and still does as a coach means you're going to get a 50 metre penalty. There is an umpiring crisis. Have we in the become game. a bit too woke about our umpires? We know we can, we're not woke enough. It's you know, an umpire's probably they can stop being so matey with players if they do occasionally and they call them just you know player, maybe not call them by their numbers, but be a bit more formal. But I just think it doesn't happen. It's one area the NRL at the moment seems to be all over the AFL. We. Desperately need more umpires. Now with 18 women's teams going to be competing in the competition, there are not enough umpires. We need to create better pathways for women umpires. The AFL says they're doing that, and Elaine Gluftis is doing a pretty good job, I reckon, in the AFL, but she's won out, well, really. Crowd, crowds have to be
1: nicer to umpires.
0: Yeah, and... Everybody has to stop carrying on about poor umpiring. You know, players make mistakes all the time. We don't carry on about their mistakes every minute of the day yes, good in point. the way we do about the umpires. So I just think it, it's such a big problem. You and I we spent so much time at junior footy. We saw the way people behaved before the umpires. To think junior umpires, 16-year-old kids, have to walk in an umpire games led onto the ground by security guards tells you there is something desperately wrong with umpiring and we need to be more respectful to umpires. So stop carrying on about the 50 metre penalties and get on with it. Corrie, if you were a fly on the wall, whose wall would you have liked to have sat on last week? The Queen's.
1: Oh, At really? Windsor Castle when Meghan and Harry visited before they went to the Invictus Games in Amsterdam, where I hope Rose
0: has invited them around for tea. Rose and, um, Rose and my granddaughter who... Have they been in Dublin. They've been in Dublin, they've been in several parts of Ireland, and happy birthday Sunday, you are one today. Ah! One year old, little Sunny. Today. Happy so, birthday to you! So that is a wonderful milestone. Well, that's, a, that's one year that you've been a grandmother. It is one year today. God, you'd
1: never noticed. And look I was there. I was, look, as
0: young as they come. I was there to see her born, and I'm sad I'm not there on her birthday. But no, um, they've been in Ireland, so they have not been at the Invictus Games. <laughs> they took Sunny on her first flight. Well, in fact. I
1: just would like to have been on the fly, at the, been on the wall as a fly, <laughs> um, at Windsor Castle because. There are no reports whatsoever than that Meghan and Harry let anybody know they were arriving. They were spotted by a busload of tourists who said, can you imagine <laughs> looking out at Windsor Castle, looking at St George's Chapel and all of a sudden who walks by and you start to wave and they wave back. <laughs> you would have been beside yourself. But apparently uh, we don't know what kind of a meeting it was. Charles, there, Charles, Prince Charles was there for a brief part of it. But I think it's really lovely that they called in to see the Queen, particularly as she's unwell and has had not such a great Easter. Join them the club, not well, Some go of the... us have had a shocking Easter. She didn't
0: go to the service, did she?
1: Um, Caro, what does Anzac Day 2022
0: look like for you? Well, Corrie, it starts with the footy on Anzac Eve, the mighty clash between the Checker Hughes clash between Richmond and Melbourne, which Richmond probably at this stage, looking at the calendar, they'll probably lose this year. <laughs> you think? Um, they would certainly set the, it set the light, lit the spark for Melbourne this time last year. I watched that game in Amsterdam. Um, I'm really, I'm going to make a serious attempt to go to the dawn service because I'm going to be in town. I have to work on Anzac Day. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be doing radio at the game between Collingwood and Essendon, which Essendon, boy oh boy, are they having problems at the moment. So for me, it's a it's going to be just wonderful that there are going to be lots of people at the Dawn service again. I don't think it'll be. And even if it is, I think people have stopped worrying about super spreader events, which seem to just keep happening. And as I look at you, coughing away. Um, I think that. Um, oh, thanks. I'd think I'm Anzac, trying. Anzac Day is just one of the great public holidays of the year. It, is, it means so much. To me, it, it means more to most Australians than Australia Day. And I really believe that. I don't think we, it's one of the few public holidays we don't debate, except to debate whether there should be football on the day. And I think that argument's been won well, and Australia
1: lost. Day actually is getting its fair share of debate, but yes. Uh,
0: exactly. And I don't, I think it'll be changed. I think it has to be. I just think it upsets too many people. I don't know why you would keep it the way it is. But Anzac Day, there's no argument. And um, it says a lot about Australia that that is the day the battle is the underdog, celebrate you know one of our most dreadful defeats, even though it was a dreadful, it was a wonderful moment of many heroic individual acts and as a I mean I've actually read most of Les carline's book, and it is a, it is one of the great well, historic.
1: i do versions. I do hope that people stop using this hackneyed term, the birth of the nation, because, Actually, we've been around for sixty thousand years. We've had people on this continent. So to say it's the birth of a nation, mm, I'm not sure about that. But Carol, I do think it's a time of reflection. I have huge respect for it. My mother had relatives, who, a couple of relatives who were in the Burma, the Thai Burma Railway Changi camps. Um, like all families, we lost people in the first and second world war. My husband Peter's grandfather. Um, had a terrible First World War. He did Gallipoli and then he did the Somme. So by the time he came back to Australia four years later, you can imagine what a shattered mess he was. So I do think of all of that history and I will be, I think, going to the dawn service at our little coastal town. So um,
0: wishing everybody um, a thoughtful and important Anzac Day next week. Yeah, my grandpa, Bill Wilson, William Wilson, dad's father, he lied about his age and went to war at the age of 15. And um, he lived till I was, you know... 14 or 15, 15 years old, and I knew him very well. And uh, he never talked about it, but it's you, you do realise it, it's not that long ago, even though there were very – are there any survivors? There are still – I think there are a couple of – well, not World War One survivors, but um, anyway, I think it's a wonderful tradition. I don't mind the tradition of children and grandchildren marching for their parents not and grandparents. All. Not at all. Corrie, what was the low point of your Easter weekend?
1: So one of, our, one of the last shopping trips involved buying an Easter bunny for Pete and myself.
0: What, a real one?
1: A, a chocolate bunny, oh, a, a, lint, <laughs> a lint chocolate bunny. No, not a real <laughs> rabbit in the garden. And so it sat on the kitchen bench through the worst days of COVID, Caro. There it was, waiting for my taste buds to come back. Oh, I know
0: it's going to happen here.
1: <laughs> right. So on... And I also follow my mother's thing is you shouldn't have an egg until Sunday. And I do agree with that tradition. So Sunday, late afternoon, taste buds are coming back. I'm starting to feel better. I had a shower at about, oh, I don't know, just straight after dinner at about 7 p.m. And in the shower, I'm thinking, "Mm, bunny and a cup of tea and Kevin McLeod, Perfect night, right? Come out. The bunny's gone. It's been smashed. who smashes the bunny without anybody seeing It's an audience participation thing. Peter.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say it was panda. I assume the dog got it no. I his dog ate she's, way, she's a box of <laughs> a, a basket of lint bunnies. She's
1: way was... too respectful to do that. <laughs> While I've been in the shower he's cracked the bunny, eaten it and all that's left is you know how the lint bunnies sit on like a platform of chocolate? There's half a platform of chocolate. He's eaten the whole bunny and half the platform of chocolate, and I said, "I just hope you're sick as a dog." I couldn't. Be- I was so angry I couldn't talk for the rest of the night. The next day, I then had to revisit it and say, "Who does such a selfish thing? Who does such a selfish thing?"
0: Well, that was a um, my solution to that would be buy two bunnies. <laughs> One is clearly not enough. Caro, what's this week's amazing fact? Well, I picked this up this morning listening to the radio. Aliens apparently exist, and they're not very friendly, according to NASA. Jesus, w- we've hit the low point here, haven't we? <laughs> according to a NASA intern from Oxford University, who was interviewed this on morning radio, you sure you're not a U.S. Republican at Senator the start in of disguise? this week. Not only is there a seventy to eighty percent, according to this Oxford intern from NASA, seventy to eighty percent. Um, chance probability the, uh, probability that aliens exist they're not very friendly we've I'm, in, I'm sorry how do we know okay we've inadvertently broadcast our location to them and that's the only reason they haven't attacked us before now and um they reckon that um a nasa proposal to reveal earth's location could in fact spark an alien attack as if we don't have enough to worry about <laughs> Can I also stress the word Oxford intern? Intern, no, intern no, no, means no. that intern's like work experience. No, no, it's not. No, it's not just the intern. This is coming from NASA, and this is coming from Oxford. If they do exist, we wouldn't expect to hear anything from them. Maybe even in our lifetime, but potentially in our grandchildren's lifetime, um, the radio broadcasts, the television signals have not been particularly friendly. I'm so, sorry. What? What radio
1: assistant? What radio
0: network? Um, well, this was an interview this morning on 3AW, but in fact there's a story that's come out this morning which is the reason 3AW did the interview, and that's a fact. Oh, it sounds like April
1: Fool's. And No. And I say you sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm sorry, I cannot accept this
0: at all. Well, I, I don't particularly think it's true, but I was rather fascinated to, to hear someone who is clearly a very smart young man say that it is, and this is coming from the Oxford University project that is working on such things. So, anyway, so Corrie, we're
1: going to rename that segment this week's dodgy, amazing fact. On that rather depressing note. That's <laughs> all we need. That's all we need Thank this Thank you
0: to our show sponsors. I'll tell you what, Carrie, that'd liven up the election.
1: Thank you. Who Reg- has the best alien policy?
0: Remember when we used to actually talk about UFOs? Anyway, thank you, Red Energy, and all your satisfied customers 12 years in a row. That was Then we you. used to
1: watch Ted Earnest on television.
0: Thank you to Prince Wine Store and Lost in Space, one of my favourite shows, for bringing you the greatest and us the greatest wines in the world. Just visit princewinestore.com.au Don't forget to tune in to our Dear Caro and Corrie segment this week. We'll be responding to your queries and questions, your modern dilemmas, questions of etiquette, friendship, parenting, politics, whatever. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, hit the sign up button on Facebook or in our show notes or send us an email which is feedback at dontshootpod.com.au Can I just ask you a question? And we'll Subscribe you
1: in Lost in Space. Why was that evil character Doctor Smith. Smith? Why was he so grumpy and evil? What was he always trying to do?
0: He was there by accident. If you've seen the so first episode, wanted ever to go epi- home. Yeah, if you've been, if you watch the first ever episode, he snuck on board um, as a, he was trying to get some information that he shouldn't have been there, and he was there as a bit of a um, imposter. And then he got stuck there when um, the, when the um, what was it called? The Jupiter Two took off. I never saw the first episode. Yeah, well, Well, I did. That that kind of makes sense now. I did. I did. And he snuck on. Anyway, who was your favourite, Penny or Judy? (laughs) I like Penny. Who was the one who was in um, Sound of Music? Sound of Music. (laughs) Cartwright. Angela Cartwright. Thank you again to all our sponsors. And remember, if you want to come to our Mother's Day gathering at Bell's Hotel, it's Thursday, May 5 at 5.30. We've got wonderful special guests. Hit the show notes again and you'll work out how to get there. It's very simple. And, Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the alien. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 12 years in a row.
1: Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world.